you so much, Brad. And it is a pleasure, a real privilege to be here at Rancho Baptist Church. We feel right at home, Judy and I, my wife sitting up here. Uh, we met uh, Peg Wilkie a moment ago and discovered that uh, I had been her son's pastor for a number of years. And I just had to commend Peg. I said, you did a good one on, you did good on that one, Peg. Uh, he was a real credit and blessing to our fellowship there. And uh, thank you for that wonderful, uplifting time of worship. All of you who are part of that, the choir, worship team up here, my heart was lifted and blessed. Thank you for your ministry. And I'm sorry that uh, the title of the message to this morning is not Grace and Rewards. We're going to the Old Testament instead. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. The very last... <laughs> I'm not sure what I said, but it wasn't right. <laughs> well, anyhow, the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, <laughs> chapter 50. That's good, all right, not chapter 51. This morning it's chapter 50. And you don't have an insert to draw pictures on, so you're just going to have to listen. We're going to be visiting the latter part of that chapter in just a moment. Life was good in Palestine those seven years. In fact, many said it was the best that they could ever remember. But the eighth year was different. The rains didn't come. The seeds shriveled in the ground. Pasture land turned brown and disappeared. Cattle began to die beside the dry watering places. And life was never more difficult in Palestine. By the ninth year, people were facing starvation. And before long, the ten proud sons of Jacob were making their way down to Egypt to, to beg for the privilege of buying food. For some reason, the ruler picks out these men. There undoubtedly were hundreds of people from many different countries around Egypt there to buy food, but he begins to harass these ten men, accuses them of being spies. No, they say, we're all brothers. Our aged father is back home. One brother is no more, and the youngest brother is with our father back in Palestine. Simeon is held prisoner and the nine brothers go back to Canaan to reenact a, a, a scene that strangely familiar of what happened there almost 20 years before when those same men hand a torn and bloody coat to the old father and say, we found this. Could this be Joseph's coat? He fell for their ruse. He immediately recognized it as Joseph's coat and was just sure that an animal had attacked and destroyed his sons. Those brothers buried a dark secret in their soul that day. I don't know if they ever spoke of Joseph, but probably there was never a day passed that Joseph was not present in their thoughts. 
The ruler had said, unless you bring that youngest brother that you spoke of with you, you can buy no more food here. The aged father said, no, he cannot go. For if he is gone, I have no more. And you'll bring these gray hairs to the grave. But as he faced starvation, not just for himself, but for his family, eventually he relented. The brothers pledged their life for the life of Benjamin. They vow to bring him back safely to the father. The second time the ruler lays eyes on these brothers, he does not speak to them. He speaks to an attendant and says, take them to my house. They'll have lunch with me today. These were shepherds. They probably had seen nothing of the magnificent of one of the greatest nations on the face of the earth that time, at that time. But he walked down the palatial avenue to undoubtedly one of the greatest mansions in Egypt at that time. They were reunited with the brother Simeon, and they made ready to have lunch with the ruler who was coming. But something very strange happened when the ruler came. He did not speak to them in their tongue, of course. He spoke through an interpreter. And he said, you over there, you take this place at the table. And you over here, you take the next place. These were grown men, bearded men, very close in age. And to their amazement, he starts at the, the oldest and goes down the line to the youngest. And Scripture says that the brothers looked at each other in astonishment. I guess they did. Someone figured for someone to do that just by chance, it would be one chance in 39,917,000. And they looked at each other, but took their places around the table. Early the next morning, their sags, the sacks of food were loaded on their animals. Secretly, the money had been placed in the top of their sacks. But unbeknowing to them, that special cup, that golden cup that Joseph used, was placed in the top of Benjamin's sack. They were barely outside the city when a contingent of soldiers stopped them and said, What kind of men are you? that you return evil for good. Why did you steal our master's cup? Loudly they protested their innocence. In fact, they said, if you find that cup in any of our sacks, you can kill that man, and the rest of us will become your slaves. Starting at the oldest, they go down to the youngest and find the cup in Benjamin's sack. They go back into the city, and there in Joseph's house is reenacted one of the most touching scenes I think you'll find in, the, in all the pages of Scripture. These men who sold Joseph as a slave, who had mocked and laughed at a teenage boy as he pleaded for mercy hauled off to be nothing more than an animal in a foreign country. These same men stand before Joseph now and pour out their heart 
and offer to give their life in the place of Benjamin if only he could be spared. Joseph can contain his emotions no longer, and finally he orders the Egyptians out of the room and asks the men to come close and says, I am Joseph, your brother. They were so astonished they could not even speak. Now picture a different scene. Back in Canaan now with those same men, and they walk into that same tent and say to the old father, How are you doing today, Dad? How's your heart? We've got some news for you. Joseph is alive. Not only is Joseph alive, but he's the ruler of Egypt. Before long, they packed all their belongings and they make their way to live in Egypt, the best of the land. But before very long, the father dies. And that's the setting for our study this morning, Genesis chapter 50. Let's begin our reading with verse 15. We'll read down through verse 21. And I'm going to ask that we stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them. And spoke kindly to them. May God bless His word to our hearts. You may be you may be seated. They say that the most common physical malady is poor eyesight, and about the best we can hope for naturally is 20/20 vision. Some people never do rise above that just to see life from a natural point of view. But there's a supernatural way of looking at life. It's what David Siemens in one of his book called 50-20 vision. From that 20th verse, look at it again. Joseph said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 50-20 vision. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth of the matter is that None of us rarely see things as they are. We almost always see things as we are. And that's probably seen no more clearly in anyone's life than that of Joseph. As he said, you indeed, you indeed intended harm for me. Wasn't a mistake, wasn't an accident, you wanted to hurt me. 
But what left your heart and your hands intended for harm, God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I'd like to talk to you about 50-20 vision. Share with you three insights from this passage of Scripture. First of all, 50-20 vision sees God as in control of the events of our lives. We've read that verse several times probably will read it again several times. I hope perhaps that you could commit it to memory. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Turn back over to Genesis 45. Genesis chapter 45 and drop down to verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives with a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Summarized, Joseph is saying... I recognize that God has been and is in control of my life. And the longer I live, the more comfortable I become with the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now let me hasten to say, I did not say I understand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Just to mentally chew on the fact that somehow the sovereign Lord can take that which comes from the heart of man intended as evil and harm and use it for good and for blessing and help. I do not understand, but I accept that. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. Has that truth ever really gripped your hearts? that God is in control of your life if you belong to Him. No matter what is crowded in, bad as it may seem on the surface, God is in control. Some of you may remember the name Martin and Gracia Burnham. They were missionaries with New Tribes Mission in the Philippines a few years ago, captured by the rebels held captive for almost a year. Churches throughout the United States, in fact, around the world, poured out their hearts in prayer that God would spare the lives of those two choice people. As the soldiers came to rescue them in the fighting that ensued, Martin was killed. Garcia was rescued and came home. A few months after that event, she wrote, listen, Sometimes I wonder, why did Martin die 
when everyone was praying, he wouldn't. Why does Scripture lead you to believe that if you pray a certain way, you'll get what you pray for? People all over the world were praying that we'd get out alive, but we didn't. I used to have this concept of what God is like and how life's supposed to be because of that. But in that jungle, I learned I didn't know much about God, not nearly as much as I thought I did. I don't have Him in a theological box anymore. What I do know is that God is God, and I'm not. The world's in a mess because of sin, not God. Some awful things may happen to me, but God does what is right. Then she finished that letter with these words. And He makes good out of bad situations. He does indeed make good out of bad situations. Though sometimes right in the midst of it all we wonder, is God really alive? Does God really answer prayer? And it may be that there's some in this room here this morning that are right there in the middle of a difficult situation. It may be a broken heart because of family members or children who've rejected your faith and chosen to go the ways of the world. It may be that recently you've heard from the doctor's lips that terrible word of cancer. Maybe financial difficulties. I don't know where you are. But if you're there, I just pray that God would give you that ability to see with 50-20 vision that God really is in control of the events of your life. But there's another truth I want us to see in this passage of Scripture. Not only is God in control, but secondly, 50-20 vision sees God as the avenger of wrong. 50-20 vision sees God as the one who's going to even the score. Look again at verse 19, back in chapter 50. Joseph asked the question, Am I in the place of God? In other words, he's saying, God and not man is to be the, the avenger of wrong. You intended to harm me. I'm not holding a grudge, and I'm not going to try to get even, because that's God's responsibility and not mine. And very often in life, uh, all of us are tempted to play God, because I guess we just really fear that maybe God won't even the score like He should. I heard of a man who loved Porsche automobiles. He didn't own one, but he know, knew all about Porsche cars. He knew all the styles. He knew the size of the motors. He knew all about them, but knew that he'd never have enough money to own one. One day he just happened to be glancing through the want ads in his little town, and he noticed a want ad that caught his attention. A 2006 Porsche for sale for $500. And he chuckled and said, somebody's going to be embarrassed when they discover how many zeros they've left off that. But the next day the same ad was there, and so out of curiosity he phoned the number. And the lady said, yes, it is a 2006 Porsche top of the line, only has a few thousand miles on it, and yes, I still have it 
and it is for sale for $500. The man got over there as quickly as he could without even starting the motor. He wrote out a check for $500 and purchased the car. He was so thrilled all that day with his wonderful purchase and that beautiful new Porsche that he owned. But he didn't sleep that much that night because his conscience was bothering him that he had taken advantage of a lady who did not know the value of that car. So early the next morning, he called her and said, I need to apologize. I took advantage of you and paid you just a pittance of what that car is really worth. And she stopped him and said, wait a minute. I know so precisely what that car sold for. It wasn't $50,000, it was $65,000. And the man said, well, why on earth would you sell it for $500? And after a little bit of probing, she said, all right, if you must know, I'll tell you the story. My husband and I have been through some difficult times together. I worked and put him through graduate school. We did without, and we went through some difficult times financially to get established in business. Now the children are grown. He's doing well. President of the company. And he hits that midpoint in life and takes off to Hawaii with his young secretary. And they're over there now living it up. And she said, all I've heard from him was, the other day I got a card from him that said, sell my Porsche and send me the money. <laughs> so she said, I'm selling his Porsche and I'm going to send him the money. I like that story. <laughs> I like that story. He got what he deserved, didn't he? <clears throat> but I have to confess that there's something in my spirit when I revel in stories like that that isn't right. <laughs> Paul said in Romans 12, 19, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 21. Simon Peter is talking about our Lord. Well, really, he's writing to people who are going through times of suffering. And he uses Jesus as an illustration on the cross. And he says in verse 21, To this you were called, that is, to suffer, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sins... And no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. Now that's the point that Peter's making. Unjustly treated, they hurled insults at him, they spit in his face, but he did not retaliate. He certainly could have. He could have spoken one word and had 12 legion of angels. 72,000 of those creatures right at his beck and call. But Peter said he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The key word there is entrusted. When he was unjustly treated, when he had the right and the, and the, and the power to get even, he didn't. But Peter said, instead, he handled the wrong that came his way by entrusting himself to the one who does judge justly. 
That word entrusted is an interesting word. It's the same word that Matthew uses when he talks about Judas. When Judas went to the Sanhedrin and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Speaking of Jesus. If I just put him in your hands, in your control. What, what will you give me? That's precisely the word that Simon Peter used. And that's what we're called to do. Instead of evening the score, getting our pound of flesh, just to entrust ourselves even in the midst of being wronged to God's care. It may be that some along the way have begun to get a little bit angry with God. If God really is God, if He really is in control of this world, if He is, as Scripture teaches, sovereign, totally in control, then why did God permit this to happen in my life or that to happen in the life of those that are dear to me? 1989, uh, after Poland had just come out of that iron rule of communism, Billy Graham was in, was in Budapest, Hungary, uh, for a crusade. And they were in the uh, sports stadium there. 110,000 Christians packed that stadium for a number of days. The most people that had ever been in that stadium. They were there to rejoice and to praise God that they were no longer under the iron, iron heel of communism. But the person who impressed them most was a young lady named Johnny Erickson Tada. She sang, gave her testimony, told how that as a youngster her neck was broken in a diving accident. But they said the thing that impressed them the most was the fact that she was free from bitterness and from self-pity, though she had spent her life and would spend the rest of her life in that wheelchair. And she concluded her testimony by pointing to the wheelchair and saying, This is the prison that has set me free. That's 50-20 vision, folks. I don't know why God does a lot of things that God does. But nonetheless, even in this wheelchair, He has set me free. Well... We've discovered that God is in control, and we've discovered that God is the avenger of wrong. There's a third and last thing I'd like us to note in these verses. 50-20 vision sees beyond the smudges of bitterness. Sees beyond the smudges of bitterness. That dark emotion that comes into the heart of every single one of us, I care not how far down the road of the Christian life, you've gone. Verse 21, Joseph says, So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. I understand the words of Joseph in that text to be saying, Man, you don't have to be afraid of me. I'm not bitter against you. I don't have a score to even with you. You can relax. I'm going to take care of you and your children. You're all right. What he was saying is, there's no bitterness there in my life. 
One of my closest friends through the years was a young man that I went through four years of college with. He was from the same part of the panhandle of Texas that I grew up in, and uh, we spent a lot of time together. Both of us, about the same point in life, began to sense God's call into, into Christian ministry our first year in college. His dad was a pastor, so was mine. And we spent our summers in what we call back in those days youth revivals. Now you have to wonder about the sanity of a pastor that would invite two green college kids in to do preaching in his church for a whole week. But we had some great times together. Those were times of spiritual growth in our life. I remember well the two of us on our knees often before God begging Him for His power and to use us for His glory. We finished college and our paths parted. I went on to seminary. He took the pastorate of a fair-sized church out in West Texas. After the honeymoon, things began to deteriorate as far as his relationship with the congregation. And it culminated in one of those awful business meetings when tempers flared and things were said that should not have been said. And he was hurt deeply. His wife was hurt. His children, who were a part of that meeting as well, were hurt deeply. He resigned and left the ministry. It was almost 25 years after that event that Judy and I were back in that part of the country, and we had dinner with them one night. Reflected over the years, but spent a good part of our evening together listening to them recount what the people in that church had done to them, how they'd been hurt and so unjustly treated when they'd tried to do what was right, they'd given their very best, and that was what uh, they got for it. The close of the evening, Judy and I were, were going back to where we were staying after that meeting, and she said, Did you notice what I noticed? That after 25 years, those hurts were, were still there. And they talked just as though it had happened last week or last month after 25 years. And I've reflected often on the life of my friend. He's been something of a misfit. Good man, good family. But instead of taking that event and growing through it, Instead of entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, that root of bitterness began to grow in their hearts, colored their lives, stained the life of their children, and they're on the sideline at God's work today. Bitterness is a terrible thing. But somehow this 50-20 vision that sees God in control and the avenger of wrong somehow sees beyond or erases those smudges of bitterness and refuses to fall prey to them. How can we come to that point of spiritual growth? It is said that Joseph is the most Christ-like man of the Old Testament. I think that's pretty close to the truth. Many years before our Lord came, he modeled the life of Jesus and the attitude of Jesus in so many ways. How can you and I face life with 50-20 vision 
Well, first of all, to be sure that Jesus Christ lives in your heart and that you belong to Him. And if you haven't settled that issue, you must settle that and settle that today. Secondly, to entrust yourself to God and realize that try as you may, you really can't paddle your own boat, guide your own destiny, but rather just wherever you are today in life, entrust yourself to Him. And thirdly, if there's anger and bitterness in your heart, deal with that. If that memory keeps popping to the surface, filling your mind about how wrong you were treated, maybe it's time you pull that thing out in the open and dealt with it and dealt with it this morning. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if some could go out of here today having settled the issue with the bitterness in their life? Would you bow your heads, please? Close your eyes. We're going to talk to the Lord now in prayer. I've not had the privilege of getting to know you, and I do not know where you are in your journey. But it may be that the Lord is speaking to some this morning for whom this needs to be a turning point. Right there in your heart, just you and the Lord. Would you talk to Him? Maybe a spouse, a parent, a child, or an employer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, in the pages of this book we see ourselves so clearly. Thank you for the example of Joseph and how he dealt with life. And Lord, we just want to commit anew ourselves to you not just as the one who avenges wrong, but the one who is in control of our lives. And Lord, for those this morning who made a meaningful commitment and surrender and renewal to you, would you especially put your hand of blessing upon them. May they know the joy of walking with you. May they know the fullness of Jesus Christ. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.